Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. If someone were afraid of the dentist, maybe they haven't been in a long time, maybe they're embarrassed because they haven't been in a while, I feel like this would be a really safe place for them to go and get the care that they need. At Advanced Dentistry, we get it. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, if you want to learn how IV sedation can change your life, visit NoFearDentist.com. everyone uh you have tuned in once again to uh the three questions with andy richter uh i am andy richter i continue to be unfortunately um and i am talking today with a, a very prolific creator of television of uh, laughs of good times mr mike sure uh hello mike hello how are you i'm good i'm good how are you i'm good we say how are you uh, just completely lying about the fact that we've actually been talking for about eight minutes now before you started recording. But that's it always right. feels weird to be like, how are you? And I know how you are because you just told me eight minutes right. ago. I know. But but yeah, but we have to like that. That way, then people don't know that we were talking shit about people <laughs> for those full eight minutes. <laughs> and, that, you know, and that like the the sort of, you know, update on our states was just incidental to us trashing people that's right yeah. so let's, let's let's do it one more time ask me uh introduce me and ask me how i'm doing okay ladies and gentlemen the very talented mike sure hey mike how, how are how, you it's been so long how are you i'm so excited to be talking to you and anew for the first time in in years right yes. at this moment i am starting to talk I'm so excited that I've erased my memory bank of ever having met you. <laughs> so it's all new and fresh. Wow, Mike, sure. You're going to be so disappointed. <laughs> are you are you uh, working as much as you would be normally or is, is COVID still sort of curbed what you are capable of doing? No, we're kind of still, we kind of never stopped. Um, yeah. And, and I say we meaning everyone around me, not the royal we. I mean, sure. Like no, the, I know this, but like the staffs that you work with and writers' yeah. rooms and everything. Yeah. Yeah, I was in the middle of the show, the first season of the show Rutherford Falls that I produced and created for Peacock, and we were uh, we were just about to shoot the pilot when everything shut down, and then we just seamlessly transitioned into a virtual writers' room, and then the show Hacks that I produced on HBO Max that was a hundred percent a virtual writers' room, but the you know the when we started shooting again in September. It was like, all right, we're just going to do this the way the best we can. Everybody wore masks and face shields and everybody got tested a million times. And so we never stopped it. it I mean, it, it, it shut down when everything shut down. And then once it got back up and running a few months later, it's just been pretty continuous since. Yeah, then. it's pretty wild. It's weird. I, I mean, I don't know whether it's because I know that about hacks, which I loved, by the way. And Thank it's you. not it's not something that I would normally 
you know, when you tell me it's a show about comedy, I'm usually like, ugh, you know, no thanks. (laughs) You know, because it's always like I this one of the cringiest things in the world is in a show that's about people doing comedy and somebody is doing comedy that's really hilarious. And you can tell it's really hilarious because everybody there is laughing really loud. But when you, as you sit there and listen to the person doing the comedy, it's like, it's not that good. What are they all? It's so awful. It just feels so bad. Yeah. There's, there are many examples of shows in the past that have been set in the world of sketch comedy or stand-up comedy or just comedy in general that you're watching it and you're like, you just can't help but feel like you're lying to me. These people aren't mm-hmm. actually funny. Like I yes, know, yes. And, and you don't have to be a professional comedy writer or comedian to know that. It's actually part of the reason that I tend not to like multicam sitcoms because multicam sitcoms have live audiences and in some cases laugh tracks that are sweetened or or, or in some cases unsweetened. But they, there's this rhythm to them where every single thing that every single person says gets a huge laugh from the mm-hmm. audience. And I always, when I watch them now, I feel like that's not a, that's not even a joke. Like that thing that no. person said isn't even a joke. And I don't fault the audiences because if you've been to a multi-camera sitcom taping, it is really fun and exciting and you're there and people are making jokes and they're doing stuff on stage. And it does... I think the laughter is almost entirely sincere. I really, at least the first time that they do it, yeah. maybe not take seven, but it's not their fault. It's just that like, they're, they're just excited to be there. Cause it's and fun. And they want to help. Yes, exactly. They want to help. They feel like this is my job. I got it. You know, everybody here is spinning plates and they've given us a, spl- a plate to spin. And it's just right. to laugh every time the seven times that we see this kind of lame entrance, you know? Right. And, and, but at when you're at home in the sober light of your own living room, you're like, well, that's not that isn't funny, and that's not even a joke. And then right. it, you start to just feel like you're being lied to. Yeah, gaslighted by, gas by yeah. television. Yeah, <laughs> I remember, especially coming from New York and coming from late night. I mean, I'd done other things, but I had never worked in sitcoms. I'd never worked in primetime. Uh, comedy television. I'd done a couple of movies and stuff like that. So I came from seven years of late night to LA to do sitcoms. And one of the first things I did was a guest spot on Just Shoot Me. And um, it was it was like the second or third day. And Brian Posehn and I, it was after, we were waiting for the run through that was after lunch. After lunch, Brian Posehn and I are sitting kind of in the darkness behind one of the sets you know, reading the paper or something, just hanging out quietly. And George Siegel and David Spade come and they start to do, they start the run through uh, just on the other side of the flat that we're sitting behind. And it's the third time we've gone through this. And it's just writers and just producers. There's no studio, there's no network. And you hear, you know, door open, door shut, blah, 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 blah. Bah, 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 bah. And then this shriek of lap- laughter <laughs> from the people that wrote the bit <laughs> that have seen the bit now at least four times. Right. A shriek of laughter that literally jolted me, like made me jump like up a little bit. Like, what the fuck? Like a like a gunshot. Yeah. And I just it's so I can't just I can't imagine doing 
I just can't imagine. Like, how can you do that? You know, I understand a little bit of a little bit of grease. You know, a little bit of <laughs> sure, you know, just to help them. I mean, I'm I, and I'm and a, to keep the studio network people feeling happy yes. or whatever. Yeah, sure. And I mean, and I'm a fucking talk show sidekick. I understand where a little bit of manufactured laughter just to keep things going. How that works, you know. I mean, you know, Conan will say like, "I never laughed fake." I've, I'd laugh fake all the time. You know, I mean, <laughs> I just would amp it up. You know, it'd be something that would be kind of funny. But then again, I also, too, if I'm screaming with laughter, it's because it's funny. It's not, you know. And yeah. I had, when I did Andy Richter Controls the Universe, some of the writers would say, because I was in the writer's room from the beginning of that, and they would say, you're really a tough laugh. And I was like, not really, you no. know. No, not really. Well, here's the thing, too, is that you and I both, started in late night. Yes. And late night is a is a cauldron, man. It is a boiling cauldron yes. of intensity and yep. you have to earn you really have to earn yep. laughs in late night. Yep. There because it's, you know, in your case you're on from uh, originally 12:30 to 1:30 in the morning. SNL is on from 11:30 to 1 in the morning. There are live audiences. You go out, I mean, I have never in my life experienced the kind of pain that came from bombing at SNL. Like mm-hmm. at bombing at SNL is the worst shame because yeah. it's a live audience. You've got all these talented actors. You've got Will Ferrell and Molly Shannon and Chris Parnell and Anna yeah, Gasteyer, yeah. What, whoever. What more tools could you want? Yeah, like it's very clear whose fault it is, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the sketch bombs. and But like that audience, that New York SNL audience is not, is not gaslighting anyone. They are mm-hmm. not fake laughing. They're not giving it up. They're not greasing the wheels. And so when you bombed, either at a read-through at SNL or live in a, with a sketch, it is excruciating. Yeah. And I, I think, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I think it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Like yes. bombing, bombing in those read-throughs or bombing at SNL because it drives the ego right out of you. Mm-hmm. Like if you think you're good at what you're doing, all it takes is a couple stony silences yeah. <laughs> during things you've written to re- to like just give you a reality check on how hard the job is and how difficult it is to make people laugh for real. And I yeah. really am so grateful I had that. And how ultimately when you're doing it, it's not about you. Like it's not about right. like it's this other thing that you're all doing together. It's not it, it's not the players. It's the team and it's the game, you know. Yes, 100 percent. And I, I always like even beyond SNL, I feel like the thing about Conan that was sort of, you know, like you said, it's 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 hot and heat galvanizes, you know, it makes it strong. And just that we had to do it every single night too. we right. were on, you know, we were on f- initially five nights a week and then four nights a week. You can't even, even if you bomb or you do like he used to Conan used to. Like it. it It's partly our temperament, but it's also partly I could sort of sense like early on in the relationship, I'm the one that's supposed to keep things calm. Like when 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 things get elevated, I got to be the you know, I got to keep my feet on the ground. I can't freak out with him. So we would early on, we do a bad show. You know, a show that just didn't work and it wasn't that great. And the guests Mm -hmm. weren't that great. And it was, you know, it was kind of a dull hour and it didn't feel great being out there. But you're done. And and he would be like, oh, my God, that was terrible. Oh, my God, that was awful. (laughs) And I'd say, yeah, it's a shame we don't get to do another one tomorrow. 
Right. But we, we did. You know, it's like right. you get to reinvent yourself. SNL, too. You get to reinvent yourself every week. Last yeah. week, and one so great. You're going to come back and do it again. So it's like, you know, the other thing, too, about the compressed schedule that that, it, that isn't here. You don't have time to massage rejection. In, right. in the Conan room, you come up with an idea and you say, what about this? And everyone goes, eh. And you go, are you sure? What about, no, but this, let me restate it. Now, then you let it go. You move on. You move on because yeah. there's, you don't have time. You're no. laying tracks for a train that's moving. Yes. And, and you can't, that's why, and when I got to <laughs> LA and somebody would pitch something, I'd go like, nah. It's it's not that good. It's not, you know, it didn't grab. And people would be like, oh, my God, like you're supposed to (laughs) you're supposed to like butter them up first before letting them down easy. And I'm like, what the fuck? Why? Yeah. Why? We don't We're all magicians doing card tricks for each other. We know their tricks. What the fuck? There's also there's you know, there's a flip side to that, which is I remember the first SNL that I ever did a good job. Yeah. which is like a year in to oh, be. Oh, wow. I, I, I sucked for a very long time. Uh, and, and again, this is not false modesty. I legitimately, objectively sucked at the yeah. job. And about a year in, I had a show that where I just, I, I, I was getting better. I was figuring it out. And finally I have the show where like, I get like two sketches on and a bunch of like weekend update jokes. And I just was like, I was the guy that mm-hmm. week. Like I, every, it, you sort of take turns. Usually when I was there, it was like, well, Tina, Faye is always going to have three sketches on the air. And She's Adam, the guy. Adam yeah. McKay is going to have three sketches right. on the air. But then you, everybody else was sort of taking turns. So you'd have, a, oh, this person got two sketches on. Good for them or whatever. So that week, I was the guy. I don't remember who the host was. I don't remember what was going on. But I did a great job. And for the first time in my in my life. <laughs> and uh, and the sketches went on the air. And they did pretty well. And the jokes that I got on Weekend Update like did pretty well. And I was just on top of the world because I was like, finally, I figured this out. And I, you know, went to sleep and I woke up on Monday and was like, oh, I have to do it again. Yeah. Like that's gone now. No yeah, one yeah. cares. Everyone yeah. has forgotten that like obviously a, a five show a week or four show a week show is even is this times four or five. Yeah. But the disposability of what you're doing really hammers gets hammered home all the time where it's like it doesn't nobody cares what you did last yes. week. we're starting with a blank page yes and we have a show to do and so that's another thing that drives the ego out of you because yes. the second you think you're you're a big deal or that you're good at this or that you figured it out or that you can coast it's like we have another hour or another 90 yep. minutes we have to do right now get your ass in gear and figure yeah. something out i remember um will ferrell's last show at snl um he uh, he was leaving and everyone was miserable and it was a sort of the the very last show of the year was this sort of like this victory tour where he and McKay wrote like seven things yeah, uh, yeah. all of which were amazing and there was some of his old best characters Robert Goulet maybe and you know Harry Carey thrown in Harry there perhaps sure yeah, one, yeah. Harry Carey who had I think been dead for several years let's <laughs> yes, get him yes. there. but but um. So, you know, of those, you know, four or five of them get chosen because it's like this is Will's last show. And then after the dress rehearsal, like two of them got cut because that's what happens at SNL is you do a dress rehearsal and they cut a bunch of stuff. And one of the ones that was cut, and I don't remember what it was, was a thing that like he had really wanted to do. And I remember I went up to him and I was like, well, I am so sorry that this is happening this way. And he kind of shrugged. He was like, "Eh, it's SNL. 
You know, like yeah. that's what happens. You write yeah, sketches yeah. and they get cut. Yeah. And he he had such a more evolved attitude about it than I did. I had no investment in it at all, except that <laughs> I loved him and wanted him to be on TV more. Yeah, but yeah. And he, probably that, wanted to see that sketch again, too, because I bet I did, it was yeah. funny. I bet it was funny, yeah. But that he had just the right attitude, which is like, yeah, this is the deal with this show. Like, it, if you're looking for something else from this show, go, you're in the wrong place. Like, yeah. This, is, this show is about grinding it out and disposable tissue-like comedy that we do every week, and then we start again on Monday. And if, that's not, if you want something else, you're in the wrong place. Yeah, yeah. Improv teaches you that because you can have like really a mind blowing show where literally things come out of your mouth that you don't know where they came from. Right. And the and you leave there on such a high and then it just goes out into the night air and never to be seen again. Right. Maybe Brian Stack will remember it word for word because he (laughs) has a weird (laughs) photographic memory for every sketch ever done. Right. Right. And the other the other beautiful thing that happens and that I started to notice early on and improv does this r- repeated strip TV does this the the feeling of well I can make more you know like uh, it, it's you know like me thinking of funny things to put on TV is not there's not there's not a dry well yet you know I mean right. there's still stuff there and I think there are so people that people that get so like this idea, this con- and it's like it doesn't matter. It's just, it's not you know, it's not a poem, it's not a sculpture, it's right. a sketch idea. And in five years, nobody will think it's funny anyway. You know, right. I mean, odds are so. Yeah, yeah. Well, but the reason I bring it, I I brought it up initially to say that one of the things about watching Hacks was it had a COVID feel. It had. Like I could feel like, and like I say, I don't know whether that's just because I, you know, have like an insider look at how things are shot because I do. And I often say things about the way things are shot that my daughter is like, shut up. Like, I don't care. Yeah. Don't care, dad. <laughs> um, like, man, that I bet that took three days to shoot that thing. Shut up, dad. Uh, <laughs> but I, it felt like it It had like a, a isolated feel to it. You know, lots of scenes of in hotel rooms and things and in big, fancy Vegasy places, which are already alienating. Yeah. Like the fanciness of of, of of Vegas already makes me feel sad and lonely for yep. some reason. It's the saddest and loneliest place on earth. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was, but it, it, and it didn't hurt it in any way it made me feel like kind of coming out of covid and seeing the show that i knew was made in covid it was it was kind of nice you know because you know it ultimately the show is about broken people making connections Mm -hmm. and i mean that's like you know that's kind of it's a great theme if yeah if covid wasn't a like a reset of that for you know like so many people and made you think about the ways in which you're broken and the ways in which you need <laughs> you, to connect. connect or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, but anyway, yeah. I, I loved it. I loved it. Well, I'm glad. I mean, that some of that stuff is coincidental. You know, that was always the pitch, the pitch, um, which we took out, I think in, I don't even remember when 2019, um, that loneliness, that alienation, that feeling of like, I'm in, you know, the, H- Hannah Einbender who plays Ava, the, the young, girl who you know ends up sort of like becoming a mentee slash daughter figure to this to gene smart's character been a guest on this show 
Oh, excellent. Yeah. Um, she has, her character has this, um, you know, love of LA and all things LA and she ends up in Vegas. And part of the pitch was, you know, Vegas is this bizarre place that is so close. It's 45 minutes by plane from mm-hmm. Los Angeles and couldn't feel farther away from yeah. Los Angeles. And, and she's just, she just wants to get back. Like she's just in this weird place where she doesn't understand the rules or the way that the hotel work or where to go to get her dinner or lunch or whatever. And she just feels like I, I I'm trapped in this weird purgatory. And it just so happened. I think that that is how a lot of us felt even in our own homes during COVID. It just yeah. was this weird, isolating, alienating thing. And, it, you know, uh, a lot of people were talking about how Ted Lasso came along at the perfect time because the world was just in need of this kind of optimism and and positivity. But I also think that Hacks, Hacks did it the same thing in the other way, which was yeah. like, it, it is, it, we're all feeling this way now. And it's about, the the show is really about, like you said, these two women who just need they they're missing something. They're fundamentally missing a piece of their soul or their constitution or whatever you want to call it. And un, in, in the most unlikely possible way, they find it in the other one. Like the yeah. no no twenty four year old would ever think. You know what I really need is a seventy something uh, <laughs> comedian to help me fill my <laughs> fill my yeah, soul yeah. or vice versa. But that's what that's what the show is really about. So I think it yeah. sort of struck a chord for that reason. No, it's really it's really it's it's just a beautiful story. And I, um, I I love how both of the characters are. <laughs> both of the characters are like, you know, like Hannah's character is fucking tiresome a lot of the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just she, like you guys did a good job of of portraying a young person who, yes, is correct. Like you're correct in what you're saying, but Jesus Christ, you're annoying. Mm-hmm. You're oh yes. fuck, just uh, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you, but shut up and just you know live a little too. Like, well, that's the so. I first want to say that this is I did not create the show. It's it's uh, Jen Statsky who yeah. worked with me at, at Parks and Rec and and then in the Good Place. Um, and Paul Downs and Lucia Aniello are the three creators, and they deserve one hundred percent of the credit. I just always feel like I need to say that. Yeah, um, but I'm not talking to them. Yeah, exactly. Where are they right now? Yeah. Uh, so right in the when, show. Have so, fun, guys. <laughs> so, you know, Gene Smart was the known quantity and um, deservedly has gotten this tremendous amount of praise for her performance. It's a stunning performance. It's a yeah. wonderful, there's no other way to say it. It's a Gene Smart-like performance She's in been show. perfect. She's been perfect forever. For 40, 50 years yeah, now, yeah. she's been doing this. And, and I'm so happy that people now see her in this different way because she's legitimately hilarious. She's an incredible actress. She deserves all of the awards that exist in Hollywood. Yeah. Hannah Einbender, who was a relative unknown, uh, or to steal Conan's famous line, uh, she is a complete unknown. Uh, when, (laughs) when we put her in the show, to me, it's equally as impressive a performance for exactly the reason you're talking about, which is her character is really annoying. And it's really hard to play an annoying character and not actually be annoying yourself. And she has this magical quality about her, which is that she can be, she can say annoying things and she can take annoying stances and she can be condescending and lackadaisical and infuriating and all of the things that people who are our age 
sometimes say, complain about people who were her age. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yet, at the end of the day, she's so sympathetic, and you and she you can you, she wears her wounds on her sleeves, and you can tell how damaged she is and how mm-hmm. much um, she deserves happiness. And and I I just think it's an incredible acting performance. I'm so happy for her that yeah um, that, that that it that people are seeing that. No, I I really I just was so so happy to like it so much, and because I also too like I'm not I don't I don't people ask me like what comedies are you watching, and it's almost nothing. None. I don't yeah I don't watch like you said Ted Lasso. I have not watched Ted Lasso because I have a feeling it's probably too optimistic and feel good for me <laughs> uh, to be straight up honest. I just feel like it's going to be all, you know, it's going to be, you know, like there's going to be a whole lot of sports stuff and the way sports bring us together, which, you know, I'm making the jerk off motion folks. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I just, and I will get around to seeing it, but I just sure. haven't seen it yet. But well, you know, I think this, that when you, when you work in comedy, the last thing you want to do at night is watch comedy. It's just, it's just the deal. Like I'm, I don't know if drama writers or performers are the same way, but my wife, who's also a comedy writer and I almost exclusively watch either uh, dramas or, or dramatic uh, movies or reality shows where people get matched with their, with dogs from shelters. Those are the only two (laughs) things that that we watch. That's all we want to see. We don't. And, and part of it is part of it is exactly what you're saying, which is like, you see the matrix code behind yeah. the stories and you're like, okay, they're doing this thing where this is going to happen. And once yeah. in a while, there'll be a show that's genuinely new and fresh and exciting. And right. kind of like, I, I don't know if you watched the great, um, the show about uh, Catherine, the great, I, I, I watched a number of them and it was, it, it was sweet. Yeah. And it also has a tone that I think I've never seen before. Like, yeah. I don't even know how to describe it. And I, I, I became interested in it. I loved it, and I became interested in it in a way that, like, an anthropologist would be interested in discovering, like, a new culture in, in like, Antarctica <laughs> or something. Of like, oh, this is fascinating. Let right, me examine right. this. Um, so sometimes early something like that, but generally speaking, you just you know what everybody's doing because you've done. You know, if you work in a slaughterhouse. You yeah. don't want to uh, at night. You don't want to like cook a sausage because you're the like, one, I know, the, I just know how this the, is made. The one I metaphor is that like a plumber doesn't come home and watch HDTV. You know, <laughs> right? Exactly. You know, it's yeah. Like, I, yeah, I did that all day. No, thank you. Um, yeah. Aren't you supposed well, to ask me three questions? By the way. Yeah, that you were getting there. Uh, come on, <laughs> Jesus Christ! What the fuck? I'm I just, hosting this. Thing. I just want to make sure that well, I'm not derailing you. I don't. Want to I derail know you. you're used to producing things. You're used to being in charge, but this is mine. Listen, I have so little. If you're happy, I'm happy. I just no, wanted I, to make sure that I wasn't going off on some tangent that that was going to cause you trouble with your producers. Oh no, produ- There's no producers. Nobody. <laughs> I mean, listen, Matt's Matt's recording this, and then beyond that, it's you know, there's tumbleweeds. <laughs> <laughs> there's no one. There's it's like it, like it's like one of those boiler rooms where like you go to the offices of your podcast, and there's just like phone cords. Empty phone cords exactly. sticking out of the floor, no furniture. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yep, that's my podcast. No, uh, you know the whole gimmick of of the three questions was because I wanted to. I did. I do like to talk in in a. I like introspection. I like figuring out what happened and how it affected you, and that's just kind of you know the 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 three questions is just a way to get into that. Sure. Um, but a lot of times too, it's just. I mean, I know people want to. 
people are dying to hear what you and I think about comedy. I think so too. Uh, let's talk, let's make this a five-hour podcast <laughs> where, where we just assume that yeah. everyone is dying to hear our our, our every thought about yes. World people of don't hear enough white men talking about what, the way things should Thank be. You. It is about goddamn time that yeah. somebody asked two white dudes about comedy. Yeah, God, poor Whitey. That's all. I I'm getting the t-shirt made. <laughs> Poor Whitey. Oh, don't, don't get that T-shirt made. <laughs> <laughs> Even as a bit, don't get that T-shirt made. <laughs> Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my love's a growing? You're from uh, the East Coast, yes? Technically, originally, I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan, but I, I grew up my whole life on the East Coast, yeah. Was somebody going to U, U of M there? My dad went to U of M Law School. Okay. Um, he, I, technically, actually, he, he, he was in grad school in linguistics, and he got his like master's in linguistics or whatever, and the people were like, congratulations, you have a master's in linguistics, You've qualified for the PhD program. Don't do it. There's no jobs in linguistics like anywhere. Wow. You're going to die. You're going to starve to death and die. And so he at the time had married my mom and my older sister had been born and I had been born and he was panicking. And so he switched over, went to the law school and got a law degree and was miserable his whole life. Uh, so he to, was he had two kids as a grad student. Yeah, like you know, nerves of steel. Well, that Jesus. those the, that generation, our parents' generation, man. That my mom got married when she was a junior in college. Wow. Uh, yeah, now, I think my mom did too. Yeah. Now it yeah. should be noted the mar marriage didn't work, so it, <laughs> I don't think it was like don't take any advice uh, from her on that. Right. But, right. But yeah, they got married. She was twenty. My dad was twenty-two. My the older sister was born two years later. Can I mean, they just, imagine? it's a completely just, different I thing. I even imagine. No. I, I have mean, a 20 year old son. And I think about that fucker getting married right yeah, now. Jesus yeah. Christ. What a no, mess that would be. I mean, I, and you don't even have to do it by proxy. Like I think about myself yeah. when I was 22 and what a moron I was yeah. and how incapable of, of uh, sustaining a relationship, much less, getting married, making that kind of commitment or being a dad. Like, yeah. I, I mean, my goodness. And it's happened. That's happened in one generation. Really yeah. from their generation to ours, that stuff kind of went out the window. I think for a lot of people. Yeah. I was I mean, 27 when I got married and it, 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 
I was still stupid. You know, I still yeah. was like, it still took years to get to a point where, like, I, w- I wasn't just making big mistakes all the time. Just sure. to turn, and I mean, not like, not like, you know, n- not sexy, wild mistakes, just like <laughs> communication mistakes. Like, yeah. continually talking in a way that's not productive and that's hurtful and that, it, it, you know, if you change the way that you talk to the person you're with, Oh, wow. It's a lot better. And I didn't lose anything. I just right. changed the way, I, you know, I still, I'm still me. I'm still thinking, I'm still feeling, but I'm just saying it differently, you know? Yeah. I got married right before I turned 30. And I think I could probably got married at the earliest moment that I wasn't a total moron. Like I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I was a total moron, like a, two months before the wedding. Right, right. And I think I just slipped in into non-moron. Right, the, right. Right before we right. actually got married. And and even then, of course, you make mistakes forever. Like you'll yeah, you'll yeah. never stop making mistakes. I just can't imagine the making the kind of mistakes you make when you're 22. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. being married. I mean, and my, what a dad, mess you are! What a mess oh. you are emotionally and just everything. You know, yeah, I mean, compl- utterly ill-equipped for yeah. the kind of responsibility that marriage or parenthood uh, yeah. puts on you. Yes, and, and and so did your folks split up, and then that was what predicated the move to. Which, no, was it Connecticut moved, was that what you said? Connecticut, yeah. yeah, yeah. We, they moved when I was. My dad graduated from law school, got a job at a law firm. He, he and my mom had both grown up in the Northeast, so we just sort of moved, drifted back there. And I, I grew up in Central Connecticut for for all of my childhood. So uh, this town called West Hartford, which is just west of Hartford, and is a very quiet, very boring suburb, um, a, f- a perfectly lovely place to grow up, like. Good schools, low crime, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, upper middle class, or yeah, sort like of? A, sort of a, a little bit striated, like some super riches uh, uh, up in the hills, and then yeah, n- and then the normals are down in the flats. It's right, one of right. those places, and then the, yeah, the people that work on their houses live below their houses. <laughs> That's yes. right, and also compared to other towns in the area it was print it was more middle class then at least i don't know what it's like now i haven't been back in a long time but it was there were some really wealthy suburbs around yeah. there if if you watch the show parks and recreation that i co-created with greg daniels there there was a town called eagleton which was the the rich nice version of the town of pawnee where the main characters right. lived and eagleton was like just the waspiest fanciest everyone uh, you know was decked out in Ralph Lauren and and that sort of thing. And uh, the whole town smelled like vanilla because they had a vanilla extract um, plant or something. Wow. And that that was based on this town called Simsbury, which was right next to West Harvard. And it's where all of the like, all of the like upwardly mobile yuppies in West Harvard, like dreamed of moving to Simsbury because it was I like see. more elite and, and rarefied. So yeah, yeah, that, that suburban world was, um was where I grew up and, and it, it, I guess it, that town has actually changed a lot since I left. Like, I mean, my family's been gone for 25 years, but it's apparently now much more sort of bustling and exciting. And it was pretty sleepy when I was there, but now it's like a, it's like there's a like a shopping center and there's all sorts of like fancy stuff that's moved in. I yeah. guess because I don't know, ESPN is in the area; it's nearby, and I think all oh. the all the Richies from ESPN live there now. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm I was there when it was very sleepy and sort of boring and fine. Connecticut is weird because. Like, well, coming from the Midwest and then, you know, like living in New York City, there was there's just this kind of East Coastness that I was just not even aware of. And like uh, a friend of mine uh, that 
was from was from New Jersey, but he went to Amherst and he was friends with Matt Besser. That's how I ended up knowing him. A guy named Eric Zicklin. Do you know Eric? I don't think so. He's a he's a writer and but he he was like he and I were friends in New York when we both didn't know a lot of people in New York and we would you know, he'd say, oh, we're going to a party. And he'd say, but I should warn, you know, I should tell you, it's all like, it, it it's all, uh, you know, Yale people. <laughs> and I'd be like, what does that mean? What does he's that like, mean? he's like, well, it's just, you know, they're all people from Yale. Or it'd be like, oh, this is a Rutgers party. And I just was like, <laughs> nobody gives a shit about where you went to college in yeah. the Midwest. Nobody cares. Yeah. And so that, this notion, yeah. this notion of Connecticut to me was always that it was just, like one big country club, but it's not, there's like a lot, there's a lot of really poor people living in Connecticut, you know? Yeah, it is. It's, it's both, you know, it's, it's like, there are more kind of famous like prep schools in Connecticut than anywhere else. Like all those, you know, Connecticut and Massachusetts, that's all the Andover, Exeter, all that, all that, that kind of world, that country club, old new England, blue blood Protestant world. And then also it's like a manufacturing yeah, where there's there's like towns that are like just really blue collar, and my town was a little of both. Um, yeah. m- probably more white collar yuppie ish. Um, the only things that Connecticut has really are the insurance industry. Like, yes. uh, that it's almost the that one of the saddest things. <laughs> I I defend my state because again I like Connecticut. I like growing up there. But one yeah. of the saddest things about my childhood was Hartford wanted to be known as the insurance capital of the world. That was Sexy. a title. That was a title that they actively sought. And the problem was that technically speaking, as I remember it, Des Moines, Iowa had more insurance <laughs> people in the insurance industry. So Hartford and Des Moines were locked in this like death struggle of who could be crowned the insurance <laughs> capital of the world. So that's the kind of like white collarness. It's not, it's not yes. Silicon Valley. It's not, you know, it's this kind of all everyone is an insurance agent or a lawyer. It's that yeah. kind of white collarness. So, you know, I, again, like I didn't, I liked growing up there. It was real. I, I, I always, I went to public schools that were great and got a great education for free. And the people were really nice and I could ride my bike around in a sort of stranger things kind of a way. Uh, and, and with my friends and not worry about either real crime or, or stranger things type demon yeah, crimes. Yeah. And it, and so I, I have nothing against it at all. It just wasn't, it's not a place that I particularly wanted to stay. I wasn't yeah, you, like, I can't wait to get back there. You knew at a point, like, I'm not staying here. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like how I, old I'm not, do you think that was? I think that by the time I was looking at colleges or maybe a little earlier, I was like, I'm, when I go to college, I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. Like I, yeah. I, I just, I didn't see, I didn't see the future for me and what I was interested in, in Connecticut. Like yeah. I, you know, and, and also with New York so close, I just knew like, that's where I'm going. I, right, I kind right. of always knew like, I'm going to New York and I'm going to be in comedy somehow when I graduate. And that's what I, yeah. it's like that you're, you know, you're in a bottle and somebody pulls the cork and you're just, <laughs> you're going to yeah. float down there. Yeah. That's right. And you're not, you're not like, hey, let me get back in that bottle and try to squeeze that cork yes. back in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you went to Harvard, right? I did. You did. And we, uh, was, were you like, obviously you were a good student. I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, Conan went to Harvard, but he didn't talk about Harvard much. And I think most people, 
Most people that went to Harvard that have a healthy attitude about Harvard never talk about Harvard very much. It's always yeah. like the people that really talk about her, you know, are like, you know, uh, Dinesh D'Souza's, you know, like, and I don't even <laughs> yeah. know if he went there. But, you know, but it's always like some asshole that's got something to prove that's really like Harvard, Harvard, Harvard. Yeah. Um, Dinesh, I think, went to uh, Dartmouth. Don't oh, don't okay. pin him. Up. Harvard has too many evil supervillains to have to have another one forced down our throat. <laughs> We've got, I, I can't we've got Ted Cruz and, and oh, Jared right, Kushner right. and Mark Zuckerberg. We got, we got a, we have our fair share. Um, <laughs> so don't, don't voice Dinesh D'Souza. All right, all right. Sorry. But I, I think you're right. I think that there's a, there's a, like a, uh, there's, there's two versions of this, right? Cause one is there's a lot of Harvard people in the comedy world. And so yeah. it comes up a lot in the comedy world. Um, but that just in general, I think that it's weird to talk about where you went to college, if not asked by someone no matter where you went to college right it's like the, it's just a kind of it's so long ago now i mean i'm 45 and for it to matter for it to for really it to, mean anything yeah and and you know my i have a son who's 13 now and he's start college is just like floating into his consciousness a little mm -hmm. bit and my son would be so much happier i know this already would be so much happier at like the university of wisconsin or or oregon or uh, UCLA or any place than he would at Harvard that I'm desperately hoping he has no interest in ever yeah. even trying to go to Harvard. And I don't know if he yeah. could get in if he tried, but I just know, I know the kind of person he is and the kind of person he is, is not, is like, he's going to be happier somewhere else. And so the, the thing that's always seemed the strangest to me is when, wherever you went, the idea of forcing your kid or like in being invested in any way in your kid also going there is so crazy to me like I, oh, yeah. I i i don't understand that it's like it's such a it's college can be the greatest thing that ever happened to you it can be the best four years of your life if you find the right place right. and the right place is a different place for everybody so right i'm just uh, i i just think of it as like that was the right place for me i had a great time i loved it and i wrote on the lampoon which conan also wrote on and that was a huge thing for me in terms of my life and career and uh, I, that's sort of the end of it. And then I'm, then I graduated and I don't think about it that much anymore. Did you set out, did you set out to go to Harvard because of the comedy? Yeah. Aspect I, of it? I yeah. wrote in my, in my application that I wanted to write for the lampoon. Like that was like a thing that I knew about. I had read about and yeah. I knew that like, that was like a, was like a, 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 a place for me. I just felt it in my bones. So yeah, it's that almost, was a huge part of it. It's almost like an unofficial comedy major. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like that it's like, because there's a couple other colleges like uh, University of Wisconsin in Madison kind of has a bit of a reputation mm -hmm. as a an improv comedy kind of place. But there's not a lot of like colleges that teach you how to be funny. You know, you, the, you go to you go to Second City or you go to the Groundlings or UCB now. Um, but yeah. I think that Harvard did it is like unique in that sense where. Yeah, it has this weird thing, this weird magazine that was founded 150 years ago and. That's an just, extracurricular. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And, and the thing I really liked about it is there's Harvard has their version of um, what do you call them at Princeton? The eating, the eating clubs. Is that what they're called? I think that's what they're called the, at Princeton. The eat the like, they're like they're fraternities, but they're not, it's not like animal house fraternity. It's like these sort of like rarefied, you know, small clubs where you like, it's just this sort of weird social status thing of like, which eating club Ugh. are you in? And Harvard has, uh, or at gross. least, at least used to have their own version of that, which were called final clubs. And it's just pure, like 
it, in the movie The Social Network, there's one called the Porcellian that uh, that's real that the Winklevoss twins are in. Then they take them. They they're like it's just the marker of like you have a certain lineage. Your family was on the Mayflower. You had you went to the right school. You have the right mm-hmm. parents. Whatever. It's that. There's that that kind of bullshit that happens at all these Ivy League schools. The Lampoon is not that. The Lampoon is like you write pieces of comedy or you do, or you do art. And then it's just like, it's a meritocracy. Like the people take you or they don't. And that, that really appealed to me because I don't have the right name. My grandfather was like a Jewish immigrant from, uh, from the, from East, East Germany slash Russia who like, like he, I don't, I'm not going to make it if the, if the world is lined up, even as a white dude, I'm not going to make it into your fancy clubs because I just don't, I'm not the right person. But the lampoon didn't care, and like I submit, I was like that. That was their part of their selling point was like this is a meritocracy. Like if you're funny enough, you'll get in. And to test their theory, I submitted all my stuff anonymously because I was like, I want to know because I didn't know. I was like, I want to know if really if they're um, if there's if they're telling the truth. If this is truly blind admission, then if I'm good enough, I'll get in. And if not, I if I'm not, I won't. And I got in. Be, but without them knowing who I was. And that was pretty cool. Like I was like, how all did right. That, I mean, how were you able to do that? I mean, you just, I wrote, I wrote my own, I only wrote my, I wrote like my first initial. And then I can't remember what I did for my last name. I might've just written my last name because there were, there wasn't like the internet then this is, the, yeah, you yeah. Know? so like, yeah, I, I didn't, they didn't know whether I was male or, fe- I mean, eventually they learned. Cause I, you had, you had these like, you had these like interviews basically to try right. to get in there um, and physical examinations. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Conducted by <laughs> medical professionals. Sure. Sure. Uh, so, but I, so yes, I, you're right. I didn't get all the way in without them knowing, but I made the cut of to, to yeah. get to the election without them knowing whether I was male or female or who I was or what I looked like. And it just made me really happy. Cause it was like, all right, like I'm, I don't know if I'll get in or not, but I know that they don't, they're not basing this on anything other than what I'm writing, which is. The, oh, that's nice. The way yeah, that it. is yeah. good. Yeah, that's good. Good on you, Lampoon. Good <laughs> job, right. everybody. Good on you in the year 1993. <laughs> <laughs> A lot has probably happened since. Then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you were you were the president, right? That's kind of I like was. You ended, yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, that's more sort of like being uh chief editor really more isn't it kind of yeah i mean essentially yes it's like i mean the lampoon is a is a completely student run and it's a mess and everyone i mean it it goes in waves like sometimes it's you know sometimes they're really on top of everything and they publish a ton of stuff and they do all these cool pranks and they do all these parodies or whatever and then there's like fallow periods where like nobody really is minding the store <laughs> and it just kind of almost falls apart but yeah, it's basically like being the chief editor or something. And head it's, writer, you, yeah. Head writer, yeah. And you do it for a, usually a year, although Conan very famously yes. did it for two years. Um, and there's been a couple, my friend Matt Murray was president for two years, which is very rare because you have to get so on. So he, like, he too has a hole that can't be filled. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He has a, he has the part of his soul is missing and he'll yes, never, yes. he'll never repair it. That's sure, right. sure. One year, not enough. <laughs> You know, I mean, you're damaged, but not like them. No, not anything close to Conan. I mean, God. (laughs) Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. 
Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats to keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Can't you tell my love's a growing? So, uh, what do you do when you get out? I mean, is it just comedy or are you kind of like, oh boy, you know, yikes. I might have to write yeah. advertising. It's that. Yeah. I, I, um, so I'm extremely practical person. I'm very mm-hmm. risk averse. And I, when I graduated, I thought like, okay, I want to do this professionally, but I'm too, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to roll the dice forever. So I basically yeah. gave myself a year to g- become gainfully employed as a comedy writer. And if I didn't achieve that goal in a year, I was going to go to grad school. I was going to go to graduate school in English. So I got the applications ready and I moved to New York uh, right after I graduated in June of 97. And I, I couch surfed with my friends and I found a, a, a friend of a friend was uh, leaving town and I, apartment sat for her for three months and took care of her 23 year old cat. And, uh, (laughs) and I was, and I just, I sort of scraped by and I, I did, I got some temp work and I did some stuff just to pay rent when I needed to, but I was basically like, I'll take a year. And if I don't get hired in a year, I'll, I'll get it. I'll go to grad school or I'll get a job or whatever. And so I got interviewed. So I wrote a packet for SNL. I wrote a Letterman packet. I think I wrote a Conan packet. Um, pretty sure I did. And then I and I got interviewed by SNL that summer, uh, like in August, July or August of '97. And I guess so. I got interviewed, so I went into Thirty Rock for the interviews. I was very nervous, and you we went around in pairs to meet the producers, and uh, and then eventually Lauren, and I was paired with this woman, and uh, who I just chatted with amiably, and. I immediately uh, felt very strongly that I wasn't getting hired because I was like, this woman is a hundred times funnier than I am. And if this is mm. what it takes to get hired, I don't have a chance. And it was Tina Fey. And I was oh, right. Wow. And, and she got hired and I didn't. And when I heard that news, I was like, yes, that's absolutely the right decision. Like good work. Like yeah. just having talked to her for 20 minutes, it was just incredibly clear to me that I was not ready to work there. Um, so they hired her and she immediately like took over the joint and started running everything. Yeah. Um, and then in January, December, so then I was like, I was trying to do other things. I got a job pitching jokes to John Stewart, which was really great. And um, he didn't use any of them and he shouldn't have, cause they weren't good. <laughs> and, uh, and I sort of just was like, I felt like I was on the right track, but I wasn't sure whether it was going to actually happen. And then, in December, they fired some people. It was the summer. Remember when Norm Macdonald got fired from Update? Yeah. Because he was telling too many jokes about OJ. About OJ and it yeah. made Olmeyer mad, yeah. That's right. So he got fired and they and there was this big shuffle. And in classic SNL fashion, I got a call from Mike Shoemaker, the producer of the show, that said, hey, you start Monday, basically. Like, we're hiring you and you start Monday. 
Wow. And yeah, and so like January 3rd or 4th or whatever, right after the break, I was my first day. I started mid-year. And like I said before, like I sucked at the job. Like the the feeling I had when I was interviewing and talking to Tina Fey and and meeting Adam McKay and Steve Higgins and Tim Hurley, he and all the guys who were running the show at the time, I should have, I should basically should have said no to the job. I should have said, no, I'm not ready. Uh, because I was like, I, this is not, I don't understand this. Like I, these people are, are operating at a level that is the five levels above me in yeah. terms of how fast they are, how quick they are, how many ideas they have, how, just how funny they are. And so I started in January and I sucked for a, a good straight year until I figured out how to actually do the job. And, uh, well, I mean, you, you always, that's something you learn when it, it, in show business, when somebody, can you do this? You go, yeah. And then yeah. you whisper to some, yeah. Like, <laughs> Hey, how do you do this? Um, it's <laughs> totally true. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I learned that doing film production in Chicago, I'd get hired as like, I, um, I remember one job specifically, I got hired as a second AD on, I think it was Frosted Flakes. And it was, it was like one of those Tony, Tony, the tiger teaches a kid how to play baseball. Great. So there was lots of baseball stuff and it's all extras wrangling. That's what second AD is. Sure. In that. And so it's just handling the extras, moving the extras, making sure, you know, they're, you know, like, like it's an ingredient that's ready for the chef. Um, but one of the things is getting contracts done. And it was this out of town uh, coordinator. And I got hired as AD. And then she, uh, you know, like the first day she's like, she's like, okay, so get these contracts to the, you know, get everyone. It was like, you know, 30 extras. I was like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> you know, I just like straight up, like, I don't know how to do that. And she's like, oh. You, well, you took the job. I was like, yeah, but I said, I bet if you told me, you know, if you took five minutes to tell me, I bet I could figure it out, you know? So. Right. And then did she? Yeah, of course. Of yeah. course. And it was right. all fine. I mean, I realized, I realized early on though, that like, because I did, I ended up in props, which I liked because props was very, it was suited to my personality in that um, you're just, you're kind of left alone. Right. You're like, you know, they send you, they, you have a, especially if you're like, you know, uh, propping a set, they send you away with literally thousands of dollars of cash, at least in those days, they didn't <laughs> give you a credit card. They give you thousands of dollars of cash and you go buy things and you have two days where you're just out buying things and then you bring them in and, you know, and they make choices and then, you know, or I did special effects rigging props, which is where, you know, make, make these appliances, appliance doors open on their own invisibly, you know, and right. then you get a refrigerator and you have to take it apart and figure out how can I get some straps in here that'll open the door. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was just bullshitting because yeah. what do you, you know, what are yeah, you going to do? Yeah, you fake your way through it. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, like the, the, I faked my way through SNL in the first year by basically observing other people. Like I watched Adam McKay write sketches. Yeah. And for a while I was like, okay, that's my guy. I'm going to, cause, cause he would, uh, he would get four sketches on every show. Well, he's and, got the biggest brain in comedy. Yeah, yeah. He is the biggest brain of a comedy brain I have ever, yes. ever come across. I agree. Like, if, if you put a, if enviable, you put a gun to my head and say, who's the funniest person yeah. you've ever met? I say Adam McKay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but what happened was, I mean, I learned a, a lot by just watching him, but eventually I was like, 
this can't be my model because I'll never write like him. Yeah. Like if I, I was trying to imitate him and that wasn't, he's, I, I was never going to become Adam McKay. Like, it's just impossible. It's like saying, I'm going to learn how to play the piano by watching Mozart. Well, you'll never be Mozart. So look, watch someone else who has, who is closer to who you are as a mm -hmm. pianist. And so I was like, okay. And then I started watching Tina and observing Tina. And I, a little bit, I was like, she's closer She's still an alien to me. She's like the way her brain works and the way that she comes up with her ideas. It's still alien, but it's closer to something I can conceive of. Yeah. Um, but eventually what happens is like you just, you pick up little things from everybody. And then one day you write something and you're like, oh, this feels like me. Like yeah. instead of imitating other people, you're like, oh, okay, now, now I'm not imitating anyone. I've just, this is just an idea that I think is good and that I'm executing in my voice. Yeah. And it, and that's literally that happened a year into the job that it, the first time that I really felt like that was and and I had other friends Dennis McNicholas and and Rob Carlock and and Scott Wania was there at the time all these all these people who were really good at the job I didn't get good at the job until I stopped trying to write like anyone else. Yeah. And said like okay I've learned things from them but I have to only try to write like me cuz I can't just, I'm just doing these pale imitations of a TFA mm -hmm. sketch and it's never going to work. Yeah. Like that, that's, that's a huge thing. I don't know if you've ever felt that in your comedy life, but you don't like, you have to, to, to truly actually be funny. You can't be imitating anyone. You have to be speaking out of your own kind of centered voice. Um, because if you're, if you're imitating someone else, it just feels, it just feels false. It doesn't right. feel, it's like, this isn't that I'm, I'm approximating something else instead of just being true to sort of who I am and how and I it's, feel. It's such a weird thing to say to someone with the notion of like someone, say someone listening to this who is a, an aspirant uh, in comedy, listening to this and thinking, because even like the notion of like, what's me comedy wise is still kind of nebulous to me. Like sure. I couldn't, like I couldn't say, you know. Well, it's uh, sports related. It involves a strong female character and, you know, <laughs> yeah. and an a, a lot of animals. You know, I mean, it, it just it, there's it it just is kind of like a feeling and it's just kind of like an instinct about uh, this is a dynamic I that I repeat, you know, and that, mm -hmm. that kind of shows up over and over, you know. Yeah, none of it is math. None of yeah. it is none of it is something you can boil down to an actual formula. But yeah. there is a, there is a really specific feeling though that I have that I can identify. Um and there's a difference in that feeling the the feeling that you have when you're like you're like this is me like in the pocket of my own voice and my own style. That is a very very different feeling from when I'm kind of forcing it or faking yeah. it or trying to like trying to do something that isn't quite or right or yeah, doesn't fit. Meet a network note. Yeah. Like, yes, yeah, exactly. Satisfy and, a network note. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I realized way back then, and I think about it all the time is like, it's everyone. And this is the tricky thing about running a writer's room is everyone has to be having that feeling. Yeah. And that's, a, and, and everyone, every writer is different and every writer has, his, has his or her own pocket where they, where they're comfortable. And, your job, I think, when you're a showrunner is to create an environment where everyone can feel that way, no matter what his or her specific little pocket is. Like you yeah. everyone has to be relaxed and comfortable and confident and and sort of self-possessed. And it's yes. kind of that's that's your goal is to create an environment where everyone can feel that way. That's uh I mean, good on you for even acknowledging that. That part of your 
a big part of your job is to facilitate an environment in which people will be their most creative because yeah. I don't think a lot of people do that. I, they think I, yeah. I've got to, I've got to get a show that sells and I've got to get, you know, I've got to meet the network notes and I've got to get this and I've, I've got to, you know, ring every last laugh I can out of these people. But in terms of, <laughs> you know, like that was something that I always felt, you know, at being in, you know, kind of in a, you know, my position on the Conan show was weird. Like I would always joke with, you know, I would joke occasionally with people on the show. I'd, you know, I'd say like Andy Richter, head of the sidekick department. Um, <laughs> because, you know, I'm like my own one man department in it. Right. But I always felt very aware of, uh, of the responsibility on me to be, to make it a nice place to work. Yeah. You know, like, and that, and not because, I'm a good Christian or whatever. It's because it will make everything better. Yeah. It'll make my day better, first of all, selfishly, and it'll make the comedy better. Yeah. Because if if the guys running the cameras and the guys doing the props and the guys hanging the lights are all fucking miserable, odds are the show is not going to be funny. Right. And it's not going to be a place where guests want to come and hang out. And it's yeah. not going to be a, a place where writers are going to come and be like, ah, like I'm yes, home. Yes, yes. And yeah, I, I, you know, it's not part of the job. I think it's the majority of the job, honestly. And that, how did you learn that? I think partly it was my own experiences of being at SNL and being miserable because mm -hmm. I was trying to imitate other people and was terrible at it. And I felt like at any moment I was going to be fired. And frankly, I should have been fired. Like I think under normal circumstances at a normal show, I would have been fired. SNL mm. isn't normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very and weird. It's and and to it Lauren's credit, hostile environment too. Totally can. Yeah. Um, it can be very hostile because it's one of the only shows where writers are sort of pitted against each other. Mm -hmm. Like most, you know, out in LA, you're all on the same team. You're all rowing in the same direction, but SNL is, there's a limited number of slots. Yeah. There's a giant number of writers and actors who are writing. You're kind of, you're in competition and um, the results it's, it's, are quantitative. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's, it's Darwinian. It's, and yeah. Lauren, Lauren has always run it in a sort of Darwinian fashion, which is like, Hey, it's a big sloppy mess of a show. We do 90 minutes, fight it out. The winners, the, whoever writes the funniest stuff that we, you get your sketches on and a story. Yeah. And, um, so I, I, I was, I lived in constant anxiety and fear for, for that solid year that I was there because I was just trying, to, I was trying to force something that I, that was never going to work. I was trying to force my way into writing like other people, and then I and once I I went through a sort of crisis, like a a a, a career crisis slash personal crisis, where I was just like, I remember I so I started going to therapy when I was halfway through that year. So I don't know, end of end of ninety beginning mid ninety four something like that. First 90, time in ninety eight. Yeah, this is my first yeah. time. And so 1998 or something, I'm, I, I start going to therapy and I, I remember this clear as day. I was, uh, I was walking on 50th street from the one nine subway over to 30 rock. And I guess there was a Dunkin' Donuts there where I went and got coffee every day. And I was drinking the coffee and I was crossing 50th street heading in. And like a flash, a thought hit me, which was I'm miserable and I hate my job. <laughs> and, and I had never allowed myself to consider the fact that I might be miserable and hate the job because I was 22 and I was writing on SNL. Yeah. 
the end. So it, it was, was like, your dream come true. Yes, it was yeah. everything I had ever wanted. And I, of all of the 22 year olds on earth, I think I had the coolest job. In fact, mm-hmm. there was a Rolling Stone piece. Someone got in touch with me from Rolling Stone magazine and said, can we interview you about how cool your job is? And I was like, yes. And it seemed like the most natural thing in the world. Like, of course you want to talk to me. I'm 22 and I write for SNL. So this simple, weird acknowledgement that I wasn't happy and that it might have something to do with the fact that the job itself was making me unhappy, which I had never allowed myself to internalize. It was like a cloud parted. And from literally that was the moment, like from that moment on, I was so much better at the job because I was like, oh, what a relief. Like, this is because I, I'm miserable. I'm yeah. at, at the job. Yeah. And as soon as I admitted that and acknowledged it, the job became so much better. And I ended up, I worked there for six and a half years and I loved it. And I, it, everything turned on a dime hmm. once I just tuned into my own feelings and my own anxieties and my own fears of failure and everything else and allowed myself to be vulnerable in that way, like to myself, it, right. everything got better. And so that memory is so potent about like, man, there is a direct correlation between being comfortable and happy at your job and doing a good job. There is a, it is a one-to-one correlation that like it is impossible to do it well if you're not comfortable and happy, and it is a million times easier to do it well if you are comfortable and happy. And I just sort of have carried that my whole life. Like that yeah. just is a very, that was a very clear lesson. And so anytime I, I'm working on anything uh, the majority of what I think to myself is like, I'm not going to, none of these people are going to do good work unless they're comfortable and happy and feel safe and feel supported and feel like they're enjoy coming to work. And, and so it's, uh, it's like, you can do it as selfish reasons if you want to, like, mm-hmm. they're not going to write good stuff uh, if they're yeah. miserable, you know? I, well, first of all, I'm falling in love with you because, uh, <laughs> because I, no, I mean, because it's so rare to hear someone say that. And it's so rare to hear somebody in charge acknowledge, you know, that, 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 I, I, and I mean, I know, you know, the, the, the Conan show was a big, scary endeavor and it was a bit, you know, and I mean, and it was, we were, you know, there was incoming fire for years, you sure. know, that where it was just, it seemed like Everything was, you know, like we were trying to do a good show. We did a funny show, but it also kind of seemed like there were, you know, the people that were supposed to be, you know, the people that owned the ship were shooting cannons at it. You know what I mean? Like, and it's like, what are you doing? But I, I, and I, so, I mean, I, I, I give a lot just in terms of, of how it was just such a mess to run that show. But I remember... I, I distinctly remember an early meeting and I, and, and it it was early because I went to the meeting. Cause after about like 1990, 98, I stopped going to meeting. Like I just, sure. I hate meetings. I just don't like going to them and every, anything that I need to know. I mean, it's a very pampered position because I'm not going to the meeting, but I'll find out what I need to know, <laughs> you know, yeah, from the so, meeting. Someone, else, so it's someone very, who does have to go will tell me. Yes, exactly. It's very little Lord Fauntleroy of me, but it's, and I <laughs> recognize it and it's, but it's like, I, you know, you, you learn what you can take and what you can't. There was a meeting about going, our first road show, our first, like, we're going to go do a week of shows from a different town. And of course, like Boston was the first one. It just was the natural one. And I said in this meeting, 
uh, I said something like, well, wherever we go, I said, it, we should really think about it, about how much fun it's going to be for us to go on a field trip. And for this, for this group of us, like, like we should really, if we're picking locations, pick a place that we're all going to have fun at. And that, that fun will then translate onto the screen and the show will seem fun. Mm -hmm. And I, there was just, it was met with this silence and I won't name names, but you know, (laughs) but a, a legitimate eye roll from someone higher up at the show. Yeah. Like an eye roll from that. Yeah. And I just was like, okay, all right, you know, do it your way, you know, like wring your hands and sweat, you know, sweat pour from your brow and and feel like you're having a heart attack the whole time. Let's see how funny that show is, you know? Yeah, yeah, I know. And look, the reality is when you're running a show or producing a show, that it's not always possible Mm-mm. to create this of amazing, fun, exciting, comfortable atmosphere. Like there, it's a high stress business, and the production. And there's a ton of money at stake, and there's a lot of ego at stake, and there's a million moving parts. And so sometimes, like, it's going to be shitty to go to work at, yeah. at your show. It just is. Like, uh, there are just going to be moments where, for whatever reason, things of the supply chain is has broken down a script has to get thrown away yeah somebody gets has a doesn't like what they're doing that week whatever yeah and so or there's a cast member who's an asshole or whatever you know yeah, yeah it like it just it is going to happen it's human yeah. imperfection dictates that you are going to run into your fair share of obstacles and so to me you just weather those storms better if the default setting is let's try to make this happy and comfortable and yes. everybody feel safe. If that, if that's the default setting, then everyone will ride out those waves with you because they feel like this is an endeavor that is worth their time and their yeah. energy. And, and, you know, it gets worse when you add in, you know, this is a job. This isn't everyone's whole life. This is a job. People yeah. have families and they have children and they have sick relatives and they have problems in their marriages and they have all of these sorts of things that are that are so much more important mm-hmm. than whether we have the right act to break for episode 17 of season yeah. five of whatever show we're working on <laughs> and so there are going to be times when those people aren't doing their best work anyway for very legitimate important reasons and again it takes the sting out of it if to me if the experience that they've had working at the show to that point has been pleasant and has been supportive and and creatively fulfilling. There, there. It's not like oh, they'll. I'm not saying like they'll be happy to ignore their problems in order to help you. <laughs> what I'm saying is that they will feel more valued and more more a part of everything and yeah. more and just more taken care of if when those crises of a real life show up. If the job hasn't been one of those crises, if you haven't right. turned the job into like this awful, stressful thing that everyone is miserable about yeah. already, their lives will be better and yeah. they'll be happier. And like that, to, at some level, especially in comedy, man, especially in comedy, the point is to have fun. The point is yeah. to be happy and have yeah. and share something communally with a group of people that you love and think are funny and that everyone gets to just to own a piece of. Mm-hmm. And if if you're making a comedy show and anyone is miserable. There's yeah. no, there's a huge problem yeah. with that because it's the best job in the world. Doing comedy yeah. professionally is the best job in the world. 
And so if if everyone is miserable, it's like, well, well, then what are we doing, man? Right. If you it's easy to if you want everyone to be miserable, like open a coal mine and have yeah. everyone go coal mining because then everyone's miserable and you know why. Yeah. But if everyone's miserable on a comedy show, that is your fault if you're running that comedy show. That's yeah. 100 percent on you. I think also, too, that usually the person that's running a comedy show in which everyone is miserable, that person is an insecure, fearful person who's like afraid that they're not that they're not going to be able to do it, that they're not that it's yeah. not going to be funny. And it's, you know, I think that, that's pretty common. I think there's another shape for that, which is that comedy shows in general were just there was this there's this cycle of abuse that's been going on forever yeah. and ever and ever, Amazing. which is the people who were powerful at the top treat the younger people and the lower the staff writers and the PAs and the writers assistants. They treat them like shit because when they the powerful people were PAs or writers assistants, they were treated like shit by the people above them. Yeah. And so it's like this is a rite of passage. It's all that stupid hazing stuff. Right. It's, it's like, yeah, it's this is dumbest. just the deal. You have to be treated this way because I was treated this way. And it's always I, I just always want to say, like, were you happy that you were treated that way? Yeah, you seem yeah. you seem upset that you were treated yeah. that way. So why would you make someone else feel what you right, felt? Right. It doesn't make any yeah. sense. So Before that there's also that, that, shit, that version. That shit pie in the oven. Remember eating shit. Like, you know. <laughs> That's right. Like, yeah, wait, before why you, are you baking a shit pie? <laughs> before you turn that oven on to 450 yeah. <laughs> and and put that pie crust in there and dump all the shit in the pie, maybe remember how unpleasant it was when you ate it. Yeah. yeah. It's not good. <laughs> um you mentioned like uh you know, feeling that sweet spot of writing from yourself, like where it, it it fits. Which of your shows do you think has have you felt the most comfortable in? Ah, uh, it's a good question. I have certainly felt that way at all of them. Mm -hmm. um, like, and I would actually say, like, there were. I can more accurately pinpoint it to specific like moments or episodes of things that I've written. That where I was writing them, and uh, it, this is a rarity, but there are moments when I've written things where, like, I don't even feel like I'm writing; I feel like I'm dictating, or yeah. or, or being dictated to rather. And uh, this sounds very highfalutin or something, um, but it doesn't. I don't feel like I'm struggling to write the words. It feels like someone is speaking them to me and I'm just, I'm just like taking, I'm a court stenographer. Yeah. Yeah. Those, yeah. those are the moments where you feel like this is just the sweetest spot, the happiest spot, the happiest zone for me. Yeah. Um, and it's rare, like, um, you know, 98% of the time writing is a miserable slog. It's work. Yeah. <laughs> it's work. Yeah. And you, and you're, and you're, God damn it. I know this doesn't work and this, I can all go back and fix this and whatever. Yeah. That's that's the vast majority of everything I've ever written. But on on rare occasions, there have been moments where I really felt like, wow, I'm just sort of in a zone right now, and I'm and I it's like a soap bubble. Like you don't want to you don't want to get up, you don't want to move, you don't want to play music. You just are like, I don't I don't want this feeling to end. And so you just sort of like sit there quietly typing as fast as you can, so that you can get out all of the stuff that's coming. <laughs> uh, so I I. I think that there were there certainly have been chunks of time at every show where I have I personally have felt like I was in that zone. But the things I'm probably happier about are the times when it felt like the whole staff was in that zone. Like there were, you know, the Parks and Rec writing staff, for example. Um, so at the end of season two, Amy Poehler got pregnant and we had to she was due to give birth like right around the time we would have started shooting season three. Mm -hmm. and 
so we went to the network and we were like, look, the only way to do this, if you want the show is that we have to like basically finish season two and then just keep going and bank a bunch of episodes for season three that could start rolling out while she's giving birth in September. And and then once she's recovered, we can go back and start shooting again. After three days, three days after having the baby, when she comes back to work. Give her 72, 96 hours, somewhere in there, and then she'll be fine. So, so, um, you know, we made 24 episodes in that second season and then we took three weeks off and then we made six more for season three. It was wild. We basically did a 30 episode season. And so when we, when I announced this to the writing stuff, I was like, look, you know, we're exhausted that we've done 24 episodes. And I think we need some kind of like organizing principle for this new season so that we can just like generate stories because we're so tired and so we came up with this idea where the, she was going to put on this big event called the Harvest Festival and then that, and we were like, we're going to do like a six episode arc that's about, or seven episode arc that's about this one project. Instead of like every episode, it's like today is the really? day where this that's happening, whatever. such a great idea. Yeah. And I'm, I, and, and that sort of ended up becoming a model for the show. Like the show started doing more serialized stuff after this, but that zone, it, it's like partly because we were like giddy, I think. We were so exhausted and so tired. And, and then also, but also like we were just kind of clicking. Like season two, season three is when most comedy shows really start clicking because yes. you've known the characters long enough that you are, you've, you're like, you can pitch really good ideas for them. But at the same time, they're not so well-defined that you, everything is new still. So you can mm-hmm. still take them in exciting new places like Basically, season two, season three is almost always the best seasons for any comedy show. So that combination of things, I remember that chunk of time, which could have and should have been so hard to do episodes 25 through 30, basically, of this one continuous year. The whole staff was just in this crazy zone. And we just broke these really funny stories and everyone's drafts were great. Like everybody would come in with their first draft and it would be just be full of exciting, great jokes and wonderful story twists and turns. And I remember being like, this is great. This is yeah. like, we are, we are killing it right now. And then hilariously, the network decided to move our show to mid season. So we didn't even have to be on in September, which means <laughs> none of it had to happen. Like we, could have, like, we could have just waited until Amy had given birth and been totally fine. But I'm really glad in the end that it didn't go that way because it sure. really felt like we, as a group, collectively solved some kind of puzzle and we're, yeah. just, we're just grooving. And once you've done that too, it's you can revisit that. You It, it becomes a known quantity that yes. you can. Maybe it won't be as special. Maybe it won't be as productive and fertile, but you you at least know, like, we were there and we can do it again, you know? Yeah. And also, importantly, to that point, you know that it's possible. So if you're in, if you're trying to work something out as a group and you're not getting that feeling, it's like a little bit of a warning bell of like, why, why isn't this as easy? And that, that might mean there's a problem or that we should keep thinking or that there's some other path we should go down because we remember the joy the kind of like like just flourishing joy that the staff was feeling right and if we're not feeling that right now maybe we should try to do something else you know yeah well um we've been talking for a long time because it's it's fun but again um, that we said from the beginning this is two white dudes talking about comedy for five hours that's that's what you're getting <laughs> yeah, so if you want to pause it, uh, take a bathroom break. Maybe That's right. Get a, get a drink, get a snack, <laughs> settle in. 
Well, no, because uh, that, you know, that the, the, the next step of this is uh, where are you going? I mean, do you have aspirations that, you know, aren't being met? And, and they also, too, it doesn't even have to be work. Like, is there, you know, are you, you know, do you want to, are you trying to reach a point where you can live on a boat or something like, you know what I mean? Like, I, should I run for governor in the upcoming recall? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Will you support? Yeah, doesn't that sound like fun? Doesn't that sound like just because I I'm a you know like I'm a smartass and say things about politics publicly, people will say you should run for office, and I just think I would honestly rather you know neuter myself with pliers. Uh, Yeah, yeah. no, thank you. A couple of people have asked me if I if I would ever want to do that, and I'm happy to report that I have called way too many sitting members of Congress assholes on Twitter <laughs> to ever be able to even consider it. Right, you know, right. like I, I, I think I, I, I didn't do it for this reason, obviously, but I did do it. Yeah. And yeah. so now there's no, there's no way that I could ever, like, I'd have to go not only delete my tweets, but like delete the internet. Like I have to unplug the internet somehow. Yeah. yeah. And the, and the pseudonym uh, doesn't even cut it, you know, every, that's right. Yeah, they know who you yeah. are by now. Yeah. They know who I am. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so where am I going? I don't know. I, I mean, I I have a bunch of stuff that I'm working on now that feels fun yeah. and exciting still. And there are a whole bunch of young writers who I've worked with or who I've met who have their own stuff that they want to do. And yeah. it's really fun to to lend whatever weight I have to them to try to get their stuff off the ground. But, you know, again, my wife is also a comedy writer, and she and I have talked about this a lot, and I I honestly think that I stop doing it when it doesn't seem fun anymore. I have the extreme luxury and privilege of of having that choice because of what I've done so far and and of just the way that America is. Uh, I, I can afford to think about leaving this business probably earlier than most people, um, which is which makes me very lucky. But also, I think it's important, no matter what you're doing, to enjoy it. And so if I don't enjoy it anymore, I think I start my eyes start to wander yeah, uh, yeah. sometime in the future. And I don't know when that'll be. Again, I'm having so much fun, and I'm really proud of the stuff that I'm working on. But I don't think this is a thing I'm doing when I'm 65. Yeah. I think this is a thing that I do for a while longer, uh, as long as it's enjoyable. And I, And honestly, the biggest thing is, as long as I feel like I have something interesting to say. Like yeah. I, I think that the worst possible fate is um, for someone who has my job description is doing it because you feel like you just want to be in show business still, mm-hmm. or because you want because it's a job. Um, I mean, again, this is a position of privilege and luxury that I'm saying this from, but I don't ever want to do anything that doesn't have something to say about the world, and yes. that that's been true. That's been true since the since the beginning for me. Like, I I had something I wanted to say about government, and that was Parks and Rec. And Dan Gore and I had something we wanted to say about about policing, and that was Brooklyn Nine Nine. And I had something I wanted to say about ethics and and morality, and that was the Good Place. And I think every, I, I I at least attempt to have a point mm-hmm. with everything that I work on. And if I'm just like, you know what? would really work on ABC right now is a, yeah. a show about this kind of person and this kind of person. Like that's, to me, that's the, that's the less I- interesting way to do this is to yeah. just crack, try to crack the Hollywood code or something. Right. Like I, and just, 
And when you get to a point where people don't say no to you anymore, and so you just shit out four pilots that somebody buys because they've got your name on them. Yeah, and none of them are that interesting or have anything interesting to remark uh, on about the world that we live in. Like, There's a quote from David Foster Wallace, who's a, a novelist that I really love, um, where he, he was, he, he really didn't like, um, I think it was Brett Easton Ellis's novels, like the less than zero guy. Right. Mm-hmm. And they asked him, the interviewer asked him why he didn't like him. And he said, well, like the world is like dark and miserable and, and sad and unhappy. And we all kind of know that, like everyone kind of knows that, right. The more, the world is like full of misery and sadness. And he's like, and if, if that's true, then it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to write books where the point is that the world is really dark and miserable and everyone's sad and and and, and everything's awful because it, we all know that already. And what makes more sense to me is if you say, okay, given the fact that the world is miserable and sad and everyone's unhappy, what's a path through that world that where things could get better? Yeah. Right? That's that's like be prescriptive in what you're writing instead of just like holding up a mirror in quotes to society and saying like, look how shitty everything is. Yeah. And that really like struck a bell with me, um, struck a chord, rang a bell. It rang a bell and struck a chord. (laughs) You can can strike a bell. All right, good. It really struck a bell with me to coin a phrase. Um, and, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's right. I think that's right. Like, like the, the best kind of writing in any medium is the kind that says like, Here's a problem that I've noticed with the world, and here's a so here's a potential solution to that problem, mm-hmm. or at least here's a way to manage that problem, or navigate. Right. Here's a way to navigate in a world where this is a problem, or something, like, or where we can people can come together and cope with it. Right. Here's yeah. a coping mechanism, or here's a way to here's a way to just to to like um to fight off this thing that's attacking us. So that is, I mean, that's a again, that's a very literary sort of approach to this, but I think it's the right approach. I feel like whatever you're doing, it ought, and it doesn't mean it has, everything has to be high art. It doesn't like, I I think that, I think there are plenty of ridiculous, absurdist shows. Like, I think you should leave is a little bit like this to me. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think you should leave. It's wonderful. And like, there's something about that show. It's that show is like a weird kind of like social anarchy to me. It's just like he, Tim Robinson plays these characters who were lunatics in in a world that he doesn't understand and the best sketches are like he's trying so hard to understand the world that he's yeah, in yeah 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 and and it it feels like i mean it's obviously ridiculous and the point of it is that it's ridiculous but i have a tremendous amount of empathy for his character yeah, like i'm yeah. like oh no this poor man and these yeah. poor people who have to do and like there's something that is very uh, i don't know there's something very like weirdly meaningful about it to me even mm-hmm. though it's mostly dumb and and ridiculous so it doesn't what i'm saying is it doesn't have to be like everything has to be a metaphor or be high art or be like important and with a capital i it just like you have to be saying something you have yeah. to have a you have to have a reason for doing whatever you're doing and if you don't then you should do something else yeah um well, that you know that could suffice uh, for the the third question of like, what have you learned? I mean, you're you know, just trying to wrap this up, aren't you? Well, you're I mean, just, come like, on, I, I know you here. have things to do. I <laughs> I just have a wall to stare at. <laughs> no, actually, while you were talking, my daughter just stuck her head and is like, "Dad," like she's ready <laughs> to go. So, <laughs> well, wait, what is the third question? I'll give you the pithiest answer I can give. It's what have you learned? 
What have I learned? Oh, yeah. uh, well, let me take you back to the beginning, Andy. When I was <laughs> when I was two years old. Should uh, I lie down? I, I've uh, yeah, that that suffices. I've told you a bunch of stuff that I've learned. I've yeah, learned. Yeah. I've mostly learned that um, that like if you're not having fun doing the job that should be the most fun of any job in the world, quite literally. Yeah then there's something wrong and it's on you to fix it. That, that, let that suffice. Well, you also, too, I think that you have learned something that I think, uh, you know, and I mean, we went over it, just that the, the, the thing that you're doing, whatever you're doing, it's all well and good that you're, you, you know, that you're building a house or that you're, you know, cooking a meal or you're raising a child. But unless you're focused on your experience of doing that thing, you're missing out on what what it's all about anyway. Yeah. You know, and it, and it is like if you're working on a television show, whether it's a drama, whether it's a news show, what's your day like? Is your day happy? Is your day good? Is your day stressful? Is your day such that you can't wait to get the fuck out of that place? Right. You know, that's important vitally yeah. important you yeah know? It's, it's absolutely right and and it's it, there's a sort of mindfulness in the in the buddhist terminology of of like yeah. are you focused on the thing you're doing or are you or are you distracted by all these other less important things about what might happen in the future or how how this can be uh, meaning or how this can how you can make money off of this or whatever yeah. like that that sort of mindfulness which is a hard thing to achieve at least in my experience, is like that is the whole ball of wax. Like, yeah. and it doesn't matter what you're doing if you're not focused on it, not thinking about it, not doing it with love and craft and care and attention. Yeah, then you should again. You're not doing it right. That's that is the that is the job of being alive. At some it's some weird way is just like just do the thing, do whatever you're doing, and do it as yeah. well as you can, and focus on it. You, you, heaven forbid, you get to the end of this thing. And your most of your days have been happy and productive and felt good. That's right. You know, yes. Regardless of, of what, you know, have you built any great mansions? You know, are there statues about you? Who gives a shit? Yeah. You know, well, the only, well, all that's left is how are your days? You to know? bring this full circle, I remember reading an interview with Conan where he talked about like, I can't remember, like Chester Arthur or one of those presidents that no one knows about. Do you know what I'm talking about? This yeah, interview? no, I don't know, but I mean, but yeah, that sounds yeah, like Yeah, that him. sounds like Conan. Yeah, but yeah. he was talking about, I think it was like Grover Cleveland or Chester A. Arthur or one of those guys, and he was like, this guy was president of the United States, and no one knows anything about him. Yeah. Nobody cares. Like, if you ask a thousand people to list all of the presidents that have ever lived— all of them would forget Chester A. Arthur. Yeah, yeah. And there've only been whatever forty-five of them. Yeah. And his point was like, you can achieve the maximum amount that's possible in your lifetime, and a hundred years later, no one's gonna care. Mm -mm. No one's gonna remember. So, like, your job isn't to again, like you said, your job isn't to do something that leads to them putting up a statue of you in, uh, in the in the center of the town you grew up in. Because, by the way. A hundred years from now, you will have said and done things that are so offensive to that, to that society. A hundred years from now, your statue will be torn down anyway. Right, so right. Hey, my hometown, my hometown has me and Dennis Hastert. 
so I was like, like for, I was always sort of second, but now I think I'm probably oh, you're the most favored the son. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, that's Ohio? Where is that? Uh, Illinois. Yorkville, Illinois, Illinois. Illinois. Yeah. Yorkville, Illinois. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So exactly. And and if they put up a statue of you in a hundred years, they would dig up a bunch of stuff that you said that to them is really offensive and they would tear the statue down. Right, right, so right. Instead of focusing on the statue that you hope they construct of you, focus on like today and what you are doing today and who you're with and how happy they are and how happy you are and make that your goal. That's such a better goal to me than than uh, than the statue that will be torn down in a hundred years. Yep. <laughs> Well, Mike, thank you so much. This has been a really good talk. I mean, it's kept me from uh, doing the things I need to do with my child, Great. which is always, you know, always the mark of excellence. Ignore um, your children. That's the other lesson. We that's should, the other we, thing we should yeah. focus on. <laughs> yeah. I, nobody, no, nobody blew smoke up my ass. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, Mike, sure. Thank you so much. And thank all of you out there, uh, as usual, for listening. And uh, we will be back next week with three more questions. I've got a big, big love for you. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It is produced by Lane Gerbig, engineered by Marina Pice, and talent produced by Galitza Hayek. The associate producer is Jen Samples, supervising producer Aaron Blayert, and executive producers Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Cody Fisher at Earwolf. Make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. Can't you tell my love's a growing? This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. If someone were afraid of the dentist, maybe they haven't been in a long time, maybe they're embarrassed because they haven't been in a while, I feel like this would be a really safe place for them to go and get the care that they need. At Advanced Dentistry, we get it. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, if you want to learn how IV sedation can change your life, visit nofeardentist.com.